the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 432 for Sunday, January 13th, 2013. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in questions, tips, and cool stuff found. We answer your questions, we share your tips, we share some tips of our own, we share what we've seen, we all enjoy the cool stuff found, and together, we learn quite a few new things about the Mac, Apple products, and technology in general, perhaps even about life, ah, uh, whatever. I'm here, Dave Hamilton, in Durham, New Hampshire. And here, in Froggy, and even Foggy, Fairfield, Connecticut. John F. Braun. How you doing today, John? Good, good. Good. The, we, we were advised of, of uh, fog. fog. Yes. Advisory. I, I, I got nothing beyond the advisory, though. I mean, what are they advising me of? Oh, I have fog outside in the in the studio. It's it's uh, a, a more normal humidity and, and uh, visibility. But uh, but outside, it's quite, mm. quite foggy. So you're back. You you've been gallivanting about. Yes, I and the CEO what was gallivanting about. Yes, I I gallivanted back on Friday night on the on the red eye. But um, yeah, CES was good. And and you know uh, I I kvetched before I left about traveling around and all that stuff. And and as it turns out, um, we've sort of figured out a path with CES. It really helps that uh, Brian Chaffin, of course, uh, editor co-founder of of TMO with me. Uh, he lives in south of San Francisco, but he lives in the Bay Area and uh, and he drove to Vegas again this year. And having him with his car out there really made a difference because it allowed us for things like dinner and that to get off the strip. And uh, and so we didn't have to deal with the crowds as much and and uh, allowed us to kind of bounce around a little bit. So that was that was handy. And traveling was, uh, you know, it was it was fine. I never had never waited in a two hour cab line or anything. So saw a lot of cool things out there. Um Quite a few of them I'm going to actually reserve talking about simply because I want to dig deeper. Um, one category of things that I looked at was over the ear headphones, which seem to be making a comeback. I guess we can thank Dr. Dre and his uh, his Beats earphones for bringing them back into the public consciousness, which is a good thing because uh, what what he's done there is made people gotten people back into the habit of putting speakers next to their ears for years. We've been living with in ear headphones, which for the most part, though, not always are not actual dynamic drivers. They're balanced armatures that we put in our ears. And that's where we start getting into these dual driver and triple driver things. Um, those can sound great for certain applications, but me personally for listening to music, uh, I prefer listening to music out of a speaker. Um, and there are some, but very few in-ear earphones that have speakers as a, dynamic drivers as opposed to balanced armatures. And uh, but of course, all of the over-the-ear stuff has drivers. So I checked a lot of those out. I'm not a big fan of the sound signature of Beats themselves, but uh, but you know, again, they've they've sort of reinvigorated that market. So I tested a lot of earphones, John, and uh, 
I, I you know, the, the show floor of CES is not a good place to do anything other than decide, is it worth looking deeper into these headphones, you know, in a, in a more normal listening environment. And so I did that and I have a list of things that I'm going to check out and, and we'll report back. But there is one set of earphones that I did want to talk about simply for the coolness factor. They do sound really, really good. Uh, and these are the Parrot Zik, Z-I-K earphones. You might remember the Parrot company, John, as, as the folks that make the AR drone, which is the floating like helicopter type thing that you control with your iPhone, right? Awesome. You know what I'm talking about? That thing. It's got the, the cameras on. Oh, it. I've you seen it. Float yeah. it all around. Right. Okay. So those, that's cool. And obviously these folks know what they're doing with technology and, and, um, and avionics and, and, and all of that stuff. But it, but anyway, uh, they've taken some of that and gone to the headphone realm and their booth uh, was set up perfectly. They had all these things hanging from the ceiling. Of course they had the AR drone too flying around, which is cool. And I want to check that out too, but, uh, and talk a little more about that, but not right now. Um, they, they, they had all these things hanging from the ceiling with headphones floating on them and iPhones sort of stuck to these, these panels that were hanging from the ceiling and they were hanging at eye level. So you'd walk up to the booth and grab the headphones, which had no cords attached. So clearly Bluetooth headphones, which fine. Um, and as soon as you put the headphones on the track on the iPhone started playing. So it was like, okay, this is not your typical Bluetooth earphone. Um, you, you know, it's got a sensor in the, in the, uh, the pad for the, the earphone that as you put it on your skin, it, it triggers it. And of course, as you take it off, it pauses the music. So that was cool. The, there are no buttons per se on it. Um, I think there's one to turn it on and off because you got to be able to turn the Bluetooth on and off from the earphone. So that like on airplanes, you don't have to use Bluetooth because technically I think that's illegal, at least on commercial flights. Um, but, but so everything is controlled with a touch sensor on the right earphone, you swipe up for more volume, down for less volume, and across um, for uh, for you know forward track and next track and that that sort of thing. So that part was really cool, and they did sound out of the gate sounded fantastic, really comfortable. And obviously, you can plug a cable in so that you don't have to listen over Bluetooth if uh, again you're in an environment where you can't or don't want to use the wireless capability. But the really cool part was the iPhone app that they had or iOS app, I should say, for these things that you can use to tweak this thing. So you launch the app, John, and it's got a panel of, uh, I don't know, several options. The the top three of which were, well, number one, you can turn their noise canceling on and off. Um, And the noise cancellation on this one was was done pretty well. I think it's got I think they said it had five microphones in it or something. Uh, And and one of those microphones can also be used for headset purposes if you want to take a phone call. So, um, but you can turn the active noise, noise cancellation on or off. It has an equalizer built into the headphones. Again, that you control from your iPhone, a full graphic EQ. I think it was a 10 band graphic EQ. It was at least eight, but I think it was 10, uh, totally customizable. They've got some presets in there, but you can tweak them and, and set them any way you want. And then perhaps the coolest thing, although the EQ in and of itself is a cool thing. Uh, is what they call the uh, parrot concert or the, the, I guess the concert hall. Uh, And you can use that to control the environment that it's simulating. It's got a DSP, a digital signal processor inside the earphones that you can, uh, you can control. And so you can, like you can with some home stereos, you can control whether you're in a, you know, totally 
like isolated room, which is what headphones normally would be, you know, no, no effects or anything or, you know, small room, jazz club, concert hall, and each of them adds some ambience. And then the other thing you can do, which I thought was really cool is you can set the separation of the speakers uh, just by sliding things on an arc. So you can put the speakers full left and full right, kind of at the outer edges of the arc to get this really wide stereo field, or you can bring them all the way, both up to the center of the arc and have a completely mono stereo field uh, or anywhere in between. It's totally, you know, uh, customizable. So that just the fact that you have an iPhone app and you can do that with it is cool. Once you are in, uh, if you have turned Bluetooth off, the headphones retain whatever the last settings were. So you don't need to have Bluetooth on to have these features. You just need Bluetooth on to adjust these features. They're not cheap. The Zik headphones, I think, I think they said they're going to list at three ninety nine, dollars which is again, expensive, but in the, it, it's at the expensive end of the, of the range for, you know, quality over the year headphones. And like I said, these things were, were really comfortable. Uh, so, so that's, that's the only set of headphones I'm going to talk about today, John. So the CES. only way, so the only way to configure them is through an app. That's right. That's right. Oh, okay. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. But, but again, I mean, your, your volume and, and all of that you're controlling on the headphones themselves, independent of the app. All right. But the more advanced stuff like separation. And exactly. Exactly. Effects and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Now, what about, um, so I saw lots of mention, I don't know if it's a big deal or not, but I saw lots of mention of 4k TVs, which I, I would guess is, is just more resolution. Yeah. It's about 4k TVs describe any televisions that have approximately 4,000 pixels in the, uh, horizontal direction. So 4,000 by about uh, what 2,800 or something, I guess is what gets us to 16 by nine. But some of the TVs that are in the quote unquote 4k range or ultra HD is what, what some people are calling it. Oh, uh, come on. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it are like 3,800 pixels. Some were like 4,200, but they're right in that 4k ish range, 4k being 4,000 range. And I have to tell you, I was blown away by the clarity of them. I thought it might seem grainy, Right. But it wasn't. It was just really, really crystal clear and so sharp and so detailed. But again, as with all new technologies, the T and especially with with any new technology relating to TV, your television is only one piece. It's the end point. Right. You need to be able to get that content on some sort of media, first of all. And then you have to have some sort of player or avenue by which to send that media to your television and maintain that re- resolution. So um, there's not a whole lot of that out yet, uh, but there's, you know, some, you can do some streaming and, and get it there at 4k resolution. But, um, but you know, and, and I guess there's some over the air for ultra HD now too, depending mm-hmm. on your market and all of that, but it looks good. It, it certainly does. I'm still trying to, Catch up to uh, HD. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It looks fine to me, you know, 720p uh, versus 480. Right. Um, right. Or 1080 even now. Yep. Or 1080. Yeah, yeah. Which is what I have right now. Yeah. It's good enough for me. I mean, yeah. It, it, isn't there a point where there's too much resolution? You can I, see too much. I thought so. <laughs> but uh, on these TVs, it, it really, I mean, obviously they were using content that was totally, 
you know, geared towards showing off these televisions because it's CES and that's what you would do. But no, it didn't seem too clear. It was just amazingly clear. Uh, crystal, if I would say. But uh, no, it was good. I did see one TV. It was an OLED TV from Panasonic. And uh, of course, it was 4K and Ultra HD or whatever they were calling it. But uh, but the thing that they were showing off, I think, and again, you know, everything, the scale of everything at CES is hard to remember, but I, and they didn't have a size listed on this, but I'm going to guess it was somewhere in the 50 to 65 inch range. It was a, you know, fairly large, but not, not gargantuan TV. Like I think uh, Samsung had a 110 inch TV or something at their booth. It's like, okay, great. You know, but what's the cost on that? Cause the 84 inch from LG lists for like 20 grand. So I can't imagine that. Uh, a 110 is even remotely in anyone's price range, but whatever. So Panasonic had this one OLED ultra HD, uh, but it was 8.9 millimeters thick. I had trouble getting a picture that showed the side view because it just kind of became noise in the camera, but yeah, less than a centimeter thick on the TV. I'm not sure what the benefit of that is or why that would matter to me. I mean, I'm never hugging the wall, uh, where my television sits, but, uh, but it was impressive, you know, so maybe that's the reason here we are talking about it. So I guess, I guess it worked <laughs> fun stuff. CES is cool. It's, you know, it's crazy, but lots of iPhone cases, ridiculous number. I mean, it was just like, no, you have no idea. It was, it was like you had to, that was like the noise level. You just had to wade through. There were some good cases, I'll talk about one in a little bit, but, um, uh, but you know, it's like, holy cow, every guy and his brother who ever thought about making an iPhone case was there with just littering the place with crap, frankly. But, um, you know, that's how it goes. You weed through. Shall we weed through some of these questions that we have from our listeners, John, or do you, do we have any, anything else to. No, I say we, uh, Get weeding. All right. You want to start us off with Mark? <laughs> We're reading. <laughs> um, I will start us off with Mark. Okay. And uh, I think you may have some valuable input, Dave. I'll try. I hope. So, from Mark. So, lately, I've been seeing connections on my AT&T iPhone 5 where I have bars, but no data connections. See, attached screen grab. Sometimes it will be as many as three bars. I don't recall running into this issue before, but it happens often enough to me during the day in my office. Is there anything I can do to tweak my settings to avoid this? It is quite vexing. <laughs> and what he's saying, so on the far left on the iPhone, you will see a number of bars uh, from one to five. Well, zero through five, technically, right? Uh, well, zero, yeah, I guess you can, yeah, no signal. Um, and that basically, I think, is the, uh, the signal as far as uh, voice uh, having the ability to do voice calls. Okay. Okay. And then to the, and then there's the carrier, which in this case is AT&T. Now mine happens to be Verizon. Sure. And then to the right of that, you're going to see a symbol that shows what, if any data connection that you have. And I, I have never seen this before, but on his screen, there's nothing there. Right. Which I, I, again, I don't think I've ever seen that. In that what you'll normally have there, well, with the iPhone 5, I guess you can see 4G there, LTE. I don't know what it says. Um, mine says 3G or sometimes the circle, which is Edge or 1XRTT. Or you'll see your Wi-Fi network there and you'll see the little uh, radio waves. 
I don't know why he's seen nothing. So the place to look, and this is why I'm glad you're here, Dave, is that it may be different depending because the, the, the two use different technologies here, but at least on my phone, the place that I looked is that there's settings, general and cellular. Now in that area, there are a number of different settings here. So for example, uh, you can say cellular data on or off. I would, I would, certainly hope that you have that set on. If it's set off, then this explains why you're not seeing anything there. So I doubt that's the case. Sure. Um, now, another thing that may be affecting this um, is that there's also roaming uh, settings here. There's roaming where you can say, I think roaming for voice, roaming for data. Um, I have mine set for both voice and data, which is as long as you're in your country, I think is okay. I think you want to be careful with those, um, especially if you're international. So you don't, create a actually I, bill. I i have you know i mean it comes down to you if you roam if you want to isn't it uh but uh no i have those turned off on on my phone and i think everyone or the carriers recommend hmm. that you leave them off unless you want to yeah i have i leave data roaming off otherwise you, you know you wind up again if you're there's no reason to have it on um if you're in your normal range uh i've always had it off on my phones Hmm. And and it keeps you from from roaming when you don't want to or aren't aware that you're going to because it can get really expensive. OK, so yeah. maybe changing that setting from what it is now to something different. <laughs> yes. A way to solve the problem, because um, that's one way to solve a problem is just, you know, flip every switch and press every button and uh, and you'll eventually. I um I don't think that setting is going to matter, and here's why. No, I, I, I don't think so either. Yeah, yeah because I, I think mine mine has always worked, no matter that setting. Again, AT and T is a different technology, so I don't know if, if it acts different than a Verizon phone. No, because I had AT and T. I mean, I've I've always had AT and T with my phones, including all my iPhones, and I've left that roaming switch off, but um have seen a data connection on like the cruise ships or whatever. I just don't have access to use it unless I turn roaming on when I'm in an, another country. Um, and perhaps somebody in our chat room at MacGeekab.com slash stream that travels uh, more internationally than, than, than we do might have a, have an answer. So we'll say hello to our chat room, but uh, I have seen this where the, where the data connection is blank. The, the, the bars, as you, as you said, indicate the strength of your radio connection, which is going to be it's it's going to be both uh, voice and data, right? Because it, it is you're connecting to one tower for both. Um, but there are times when you don't have. Well, essentially, you don't have an IP address, right? You you just like your computer gets an IP address when you connect over Ethernet or Wi-Fi. Your phone gets an IP address when you connect over Wi-Fi, but it also gets an IP address from the carrier. Um, and I think that that's where that's the, the deciding factor in whether or not you see uh, an indication for uh, a cellular uh, data connection. I'm using cellular as sort of a catch-all term, um, a non-Wi-Fi data connection. And, and then when the, when the indicator comes up and tells you that, yes, you have an IP and here's the type of connection it is, as you said, you know, 4G or LTE or 3G or Edge or, you know, 1XRTT or whatever, you know, that is. There's some symbol that's supposed to indicate what that what that is. So, um, yeah, my guess is for for Mark here, John, that he's simply in an, his office. The signal is so weak 
that the data connection is unable to do the handshake that gets him an IP some of the time. And that's what he's experiencing here is that he has no data connection, but could in theory make a call. And, uh, and so the answer, honestly, the answer would be see if you can get on your Wi-Fi network at the office, right? That would be number one. And number two is get some, if that won't work, get some sort of cell phone signal booster, but like a microcell, which allows you to connect your uh, to the AT&T network via your internet connection uh, is great for voice calls, but it's really, really slow for, uh, for, for data. It's like 64 K a second or something. I mean, it's dog slow for data, but it's not built for that. If the, the assumption is if you have a microcell plugged in and you're close enough to it, you also could have uh, a Wi-Fi base station plugged in. And so there's no reason to use data over the microcell. So Wi-Fi the last thing. Go. <clears throat> yes. No, I agree with you. Is that the last thing is that the phone and, and I see this when I travel in the morning because I have the, there's both uh, our my ISP has wireless uh, optimum Wi-Fi, they call it and 3G. And what will happen is when I'm uh, doing the work thing on the train, I'll see it uh, switch back and forth. Uh, because it's set to look for uh, optimum online, which they typically have near most of the train stations. So I'll be bopping between 3G, sometimes 1XRTT and Wi-Fi, depending on what I'm closest to. So, uh, yeah, to expand on what you said, the wi- your Wi-Fi settings, uh, yep. yeah, certainly turn it on. And actually, I do that during the day also in, in, the, uh, in my office, is that we have a Wi-Fi access point, and so I have the phone connected to that versus using a data plan. Um, which is a good thing. You'll save some money yeah, and bandwidth. Yeah, right. Now, you potentially, now what could be is that your um, your network settings may be hosed. And so there's a way, there's a place to go and, and AT&T has an article that we will, of course, link to. Uh, reset network settings using iPhone. Um, and that's, uh, where the heck is it? General, or I mean, sorry. Settings, general, reset. Reset network settings. And that will clear out your uh, VPN and your Wi-Fi settings. So there may be something wrong with them. That's not doing the handoff properly between your Wi-Fi and the, and the 3G connection, which I see that sometimes. Sure. If I'm starting to get out of range or if it just switched over from Wi-Fi to 3G, I'll, uh, things will fail. They'll say no network connection because it hasn't yet established a connection, uh, uh, gotten an IP through the 3G network. So I think we touched on pretty much everything. So there's a number of settings, or you can do this reset trick, and uh, hopefully you'll get some data, because it's a sad thing when you can't get data. It is. All right, James, sort of, I I suppose, in a follow-up to our our discussion and rant last week about iTunes Match, asks, uh, I subscribed to, I, I subscribe, currently subscribe, to iTunes Match and have a question. When I play a song on my Mac from my library, am I playing the original lower quality song, or the higher 256K AAC version that iTunes matched. I know I'm playing the higher quality version on my iDevices as I erased everything on them and re-downloaded from the iTunes match cloud. However, this isn't so clear on my Mac. All right, so you can check this out. Um, the way to look on a per song basis is to go to uh, the song, highlight it in iTunes, go to the file menu and choose get info on that first summary tab you will see at the very well you'll see the album art but 
there's a list of details there. And the top left of that list is kind. If it says matched AAC audio file, uh, or really just if it has matched in the name anywhere, then yes, you are playing the version that is matched from the cloud. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be playing whatever you had on your hard drive to begin with, which may be lower quality, but also might be higher quality, depending on how you ripped it. And Apple doesn't make any assumptions about what you want to do just because you've joined iTunes match. So they leave your tracks in place on your Mac, but you can replace them with the cloud. And it's fairly easy uh, on a one off basis. If you want to replace one track, what you do is you tell it to delete the track. Uh, file delete works or you can use the keyboard shortcut of I believe command delete in iTunes uh, it will ask you are you sure you want to delete this copy uh, of the selected item and then there's a checkbox that by default is unchecked and you want to leave it unchecked that says also delete this item from iCloud you don't want to delete it from iCloud so you just delete it from your Mac and the item will stay in your music library but you'll have a little icon next to it that has a cloud now that says this song exists in the cloud, but you don't have a copy of it on your Mac. The next time you go to play it, it will download it or you can tell it to download right away. And then it will pull down the version uh, from the cloud, which in again, in many cases, and, and in my case, this certainly was true uh, that it's a higher quality than what I had ripped or what you had ripped. You might want to do this in mass though, because doing it one by one for even a small uh, music library would probably take quite some time and there's no reason because computers are really good at automated tasks. Uh, you don't even need to step outside iTunes and you don't have to think about Apple script or automator or anything like that to do this. You can use smart playlists to find all of your files that have matched in the word kind or that don't have the word matched in word kind, but are music files, put them into one smart playlist, delete them all at once from your Mac. And then, uh, and then you can create another smart playlist that shows everything that's not on your Mac that is in iCloud and then tell it to download all of those. And uh, and Jason Snell over at uh, at Macworld.com wrote an article about a year ago uh, that details this process perfectly. And there's no reason for uh, for me to to rehash it anywhere. I'll just point you to that article. And I, I am nearly certain that you'll be fine. But uh, but if you're not ask because that's what we're here for so hopefully that takes care of everything Greg. uh sorry james and greg is greg is up next is he he is and i believe okay. that's one of yours yeah yes it is yeah we're alternating here all right from greg hey guys i listened to a program oh another program with george and adam on Maccast recently and George talked about making the movies in iTunes 11 labeled as home movies. I think this is a really great idea to have them separated. So I went ahead and tried it. When I did that for my home movies that were in iTunes 11.0.1, the latest update, the program hung. I got the spinning beach ball. When I forced quit the app, I would have to delete the video I was trying to do and restore it from backup as it corrupted the file when I forced quit the app. If I do this with a YouTube video or another video, it works, but my home movies, it doesn't. I can play these videos in QuickTime Player and within iTunes. Here's the info, one of the videos that I wanted to label as home video. And I don't have that here, but it was a H.264. Nothing unusual that I could see about it. I think it was an M4, uh, M4V file. It that's is in. an M4V file. Yep, that's right. Okay, so I didn't see anything. Yeah, I mean, that, that that's normal. <laughs> um, I did a file 
uh, I did a file get info on the iTunes folder and made sure the permissions were okay. And um, <clears throat> all right, let me, uh, this is getting a bit garbled here. Uh, I don't have a problem making audio files and did a get info making them in an audio book. So that showed up in the books area. Right, when I go to consoles, I do see the iTunes hang. I attach one of these uh, to the emails in RTF, and yes, he did. And, and in the crash report, it does say, oh, the problem is with iTunes hanging. <laughs> uh, do you think this is a bug with iTunes 11? I can play the movies in the movie category within iTunes, no problem. It's just if I label it home movies, it freezes and iTunes needs to be forced quit. All right. Well, I think that about sums it up. So um, first off, I think what he means is home videos. Okay, is that movies. what is that what iTunes calls them? Okay, yep. Well, yeah. So just to correct that here, sure. Um, so in iTunes 11, if uh, on the sidebar you click on movies, you will then see a screen, and it will have five buttons on the top: unwatched movies, genres, home movies, and list. Um, and I actually tried this, Dave. Okay. So I took a movie, actually a movie trailer for Man of Steel. More Superman. Yeah. And um, and it was funny because I actually just dragged it over the iTunes icon and it did import it okay. by default into the home videos category. All right. And when it now, does that, and I, I'm leading you a little bit here based on our pre-show discussion, but I, I want to clarify when it does that. Did you go and look at what folder it put it into in your iTunes folder? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So the original was where it was, and what it does is just copies it over. Now, in right. my case, it seemed to default to home videos. Okay. So so one thing, perhaps, is that there may be an iTunes plist file that you want to whack that, that may be not set up right, so it's getting confused. But in my case, it was the default. Okay. Now, once it brought it in, what I noticed is that you can, uh, you know, if I get a get info on it, you'll then get a number of tabs on the top here, and there's an options tab and then media kind uh, and again mine defaulted to uh home video there's also music video movie tv show podcast itunes you okay uh, which will put it in different uh sections of itunes but yes dave you hit upon what i think i think the problem is that actually reading over this pete, again i have a pete, second well thought. pete's in the chat room and has the same problem pilot pete uh, is in the chat room he's he's a little under the weather today so he uh he stayed home but but he's here uh, and says he has this same problem. So what I'm what I'm curious about is, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it's in iTunes. It's in your uh, music folder because that's where right. Apple puts everything. iTunes. Now right. And so music. Yep. iTunes. Yeah. And then this is kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> yeah. But this is that's my iTunes, rant last week. iTunes right? yeah. music. Yes. And then guess what? Within iTunes music is a folder, uh, which actually I look here. Yep. Was uh, created yesterday because that's when I tried this. Okay, and what's <laughs> and it called? There's a home videos folder, okay. and within that, I see manofsteel.mov. So that's what should happen: is that it's making a copy of it and putting it in that specific folder. Now, what I'm thinking is, since other things work, that it could be that 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 it's having trouble accessing or creating that folder. And that's why it sits there forever and hangs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what it, I, I'm going to take us on a little tangent here because we do. Yeah, go ahead. We do advise people to look at crash logs all the time um, or console logs. And and that's a it can be helpful. There's there's a lot of data in there that often is only um, helpful or, or provides a clue to the developer because they know the path that they wrote. 
But but in a general sense, some of us, we can get information out of these things. And one of the things we see is a hang. What do you know what it means when it says hang versus, you know, a kernel exception or crash or any of these other things? Uh, what is what is a what is it telling us when we see the, the error location hang? Do you know? Um, I'll take the application is, is, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it's not getting anything done. Okay. It's, it's, it's sitting there spinning its wheels and waiting, uh, you know, probably waiting for something to happen. That's, that's never happening. Okay. That, that's a hang. Okay. So, so it, it, okay. So it means that the application didn't, it didn't quit. It's just still there, but nothing, Nothing going. And and then eventually the OS will actually quit something that is in a hung state for for a period of time, because that's what the OS is is good at doing. Right. Yes. Uh, sometimes you may have to manually force it. And you'll oh, see that's this sometimes true. like, well, a lot of times what you'll have to do is if you uh, highlight it. So, for example, if you click on it in the dock, um, something that's hung, I think, will then come up and uh, give you an option to force quit. Ah, OK. So hung means it hasn't. It's it it's stuck and it hasn't reported anything back in more than whatever however long it it, it times out. Okay, I, I was just curious about. I don't know the answer. I'm not, I'm I, I'm I'm asking as a as a curious listener or curious interested party. I should say. I'm not yeah, really I actually did listen. find a few articles. I'll have to read up on okay. more. But uh, there, there's a few articles that talk about troubleshooting uh, uh, hung applications. Okay. <sighs> So my one thought is that, you know, check the, uh, now you said you already checked the iTunes folder, but uh, I'm wondering if there's a home movie folder that uh, has uh, home videos folder permission or home videos yep. <laughs> uh, where the permissions are not right. Or, you know, maybe just whack it if it is there and try again. As long as maybe it's not empty. As long it. as it's empty. Oh, Cause yeah, well, it sounds like it is empty. Well, yeah. It may well, not be. It puts well. It puts copies of things in there for you. So yeah, anyway, but that Just may be sure have, that may be the only place you've got it, right? I mean, if if right, you copy so, a movie in and then and then delete the original, like many of us would do, because iTunes store you know stores all our stuff. Yeah, be careful of that. Yeah, right. So uh, yeah, make sure you have a backup. But whack that folder and see if it recreates it for you. Um, yeah, I would also run a uh, a file system check with with Disk Utility. Because if it's having trouble writing, if in fact the reason for the hang is that it can't finish the write to this folder, then then that would be another one. It could also be that there's a movie in that folder with the same name and maybe that's throwing iTunes off. Although, again, none of these things should happen, but obviously it is happening. So we're trying to figure out why. The only other thing is that I got the sense from reading this that it sounds like movies of a certain type. So I think I think it was stated that. Uh, flash videos seem to work okay, but movie movies. So I don't know if there's, uh, and this gets into uh, QuickTime Codex and things like that. I wonder if there's a. Well, it, it, from what Pete's saying in the chat room, uh, and and then what we're also seeing from you and from Greg, I think anything of the M4V kind, Apple is or iTunes is assuming is a home movie, and that's a honestly is a relatively safe assumption because, and I, I realize it's not necessarily always accurate, uh, but it is, I, I see why Apple's doing this. The assumption is 
these are uh, M4V is an unprotected movie format. It's the kind of thing that you would get off of uh, your phone or your camera or whatever. And so it is a relatively safe assumption that these are home movies or they're commercial movies that you've run through something like Handbrake and turned into an unprotected format, which then iTunes has no idea what it is. And it's pulling it in again as a home movie because it's an unprotected movie. It's not, you know, if you had downloaded something from the iTunes store on one Mac and copied it over to another Mac, it would be in a protected format. And that's that iTunes would know is not a home movie. It's a commercial movie and it would put it into, uh, into its own folder there. So, yeah. And lastly, um, you know, it could be that your iTunes is kind of messed up. Yeah. And uh, you may want to toss it, maybe using an app cleaner to make sure you clean up all the uh, all the crumbs. Right. And uh, reinstall iTunes. Right. Because it does sound to me now, again, if, if no video uh, translation was occurring, I'd be more comfortable in saying that. Mm-hmm. Or Actually, no, that, that some is happening. Yeah. Now, again, it... I don't remember where this is, Dave, but there is a place where, where QuickTime puts all these little uh, codecs. And I'm wondering if they're, they're also maybe, you know, actually, now that it I think about this more, we've run into this like, before. It doesn't sound like We've a- run into this before where if you have very old uh, codecs, and I got to find the folder that they're in. If you have very old ones or there, or there may be ones that are fighting among one another, yeah. trying to take control of something and, and it kind of gives up. Yeah, but it's not trying to play these movies. It's crashing just on moving them in. It, I don't think it's reading the codec yet. The codecs are in library QuickTime, yeah. either in your home folder or at the root of the system. Uh, yeah, it's that, just a file copy operation. Yeah, that's all, right. It's just a file copy. Yeah, this this should be. So I think I think your original thought of of uh, permissions being messed up, or there being a file there, or perhaps some you know uh, file system corruption that's just. My guess is that iTunes is just saying to the OS, take this file, copy it and put it there. And it's waiting patiently for that to finish and the OS can't finish it. And so we're in this hung state that that would be that would be my guess. So that's the path I would I think I think the original path was a good one. Path. Good. Our first sponsor for this show is Gazelle at Gazelle dot com. If you got a new iPhone maybe a new iPad, maybe a new iPod touch for the holidays and you had an old one and you still have that old one kicking around. You can turn that into greenbacks cash right there. In fact, you don't even have to get greenbacks. You can get it electronically. You send your old device to gazelle and they send you cash. How does that work? Well, what you do is you go online. Then they, you can do this on your Mac or your, Windows machine on any web browser, of course, to gazelle.com. And you can also do it on your iPhone. They've got a great mobile interface. So, uh, so you go to gazelle.com and, uh, and you tell it what you have and they will, and they will ask you some questions about its condition and all of that. And then, uh, and then they'll tell you a price. And if you like the price, they'll send you a box in most cases. And then the box comes to your house no charge to you. You slip your device into the box. You send it back. They evaluate it. Make sure it matches the type of device, the kind of device that you said you were going to send them. And uh, and then also, you know, the condition. And if it matches, they send you the money, either check or PayPal, or I think they'll even do Amazon gift cards. Uh, and you get a little bit more money out of it that way. If you do the Amazon gift card from them too. Uh, 
I've done this with Gazelle recently. Actually, I sent uh, my son's old iPod touch fourth gen in. I was going to send uh, an I an old iPhone in, but we decided to repurpose it here in the house. So they sent me a box. Uh, I only put one device in. They were of course, smart enough on the other end to realize it was only the one device in there. They readjusted the quote based on that. Asked me if that was okay. I said, yes. And boom, about three days later, the money was in my PayPal account. No fuss, no muss and uh, great packaging, really easy to use. And there's really no reason not to try it. I, like I said, I've, I've used it very recently myself, in fact, and it works great. They, I, I always recommend wiping your devices clean before you send it to them. They will also do that for you. If in fact you forget, uh, so they, uh, they, they're looking out for you. That's uh, gazelle.com G A Z E L L E.com. They'll even take your iPhones and iPads if they're broken, uh, if they have some problems with it. Uh, obviously you won't get as much for it as you would if it was fully functioning, uh, but that's stands to reason. So check them out. Gazelle.com G A Z E L L E.com. All right. So I'm looking at this wonderful agenda that you have prepped for us, John, which I very much appreciate based on the fact that I was basically traveling and then I got off the red eye and I went to three hockey games yesterday, John. Two wow. for my two for my son and uh, two that my son played at, and then one my son and I went together to watch UNH play BC and beat them last night, which was exciting. Um, but uh, so you took the time to prep this agenda, which was awesome. And so now I'm going to Andrew here, and Andrew says, "I have a Mac Mini with a one terabyte Fusion drive, and I love it. Uh, I do. I re- now, okay, now I remember answering this question uh, during the week from my hotel room." Uh, all right. Now I know where we are. I was vamping a little bit there, John. Yeah, He says other machines I have is an 11 inch air and a 15 inch MacBook pro with a five twelve uh, gigabyte factory SSD. I have, well, that's big. Uh, I have a 13 inch MacBook pro with an OWC SSD as well, but I hear so much controversy about these fusion drives. They are fantastic because for once I'm not having to constantly delete files. I have 500 gigs free. So before you let people rant about these fusion options, I suggest you try one first, then talk about it. So I have not tried a fusion drive, um, but uh, I'm very glad to share your experiences here, Andrew, because it's it, because that's what we do here. Um, our, uh, you know, we've discussed the fusion drives from a technological standpoint and fusion drive is this this marriage of an SSD and a. Uh, spindle drive into one logical volume that your Mac and you see as one place to put data. And then the Mac, uh, the operating system, OS 10 behind the scenes intelligently decides what to keep on the SSD for faster access and what to keep on the, uh, the larger, you know, uh, mechanical drive for storage. And it sort of manages your life for you in that sense. And, And that's a, on the surface, that's a great thing. Uh, the only hesitation that I'd have with with fusion drives, and I think this is where other people are, are, uh, are complaining about them. I and this, for me, this isn't really a complaint. It's just be aware walking down this path what the potential pitfalls may be. Is that recovery from damage to a fusion drive is still at best an unknown process, simply because we haven't had enough experience with failures on these yet as a as a community, um, or at worst a complete disaster. Um, at the very least, we do know from Apple support articles and the limited information that we've got that fusion drives are much more temperamental and 
you'll need to use or rely on your full backup for restoration at a much earlier stage uh, in a in the process of recovering than you would with a single drive setup. And by that, I mean, there are methods by which you can repair a drive disk utility, uh, uh, drive genius, you know, uh, disk warrior, those types of things. And we've relied on them for years to recover data and, and functionality to single drives. When you start doing things with multiple drives, and that means, you know, raid or something like this, which is sort of raid. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's not, it, but it's, it, you know, operating under some of the same principles. Uh, your ability to recover from damage is limited as compared to a single drive setup. So that's why I'm saying that you will need, you, you, you know, you will need to head to, okay, we just need to, there's no repair option here. We just need to go to the backup and get the data back. And, and that's the biggest pitfall I would foresee with a fusion drive is that your data is now in sort of a, a black hole. Uh, and, and the, the recovery paths that we know and the utilities that we have are not nearly as useful and in many cases, not useful at all to, to, to get back from these. So like anything, whether you have a single drive, a dual drive, anything like that, you do need a backup. We preach that all the time and that doesn't change. And in fact, with a fusion drive, we preach it even harder because it's just an unknown thing. It's been out less than a year. We don't have enough experience with it to, uh, to know. So that's, that's all. So that, that, that's to me, I think that's the only thing people are ranting out uh, about out there. I don't, um, haven't heard anything other than that, but be careful. Okay. That's a good one. So it gives you the speed benefit of having a disc array, but not, not as of yet the data protection aspect. Correct. The data is, yeah, that's a very good point. And I asked Apple about this the day they announced the fusion drive. I was lucky enough to, to get some time with one of their engineers when I was out there and, yeah, the data is never in is not stored redundantly. So it is either on the SSD or on the mechanical drive. But other than in at times when it's being moved from one to the other, uh, it is never in both places statically. Uh, so, yes, there is no fault tolerance other than if a, if like, again, you know, if you have the data stored on, or if they have the data stored on the SSD and they're moving it to the spindle driver vice versa i believe it is a copy operation and then it removes it uh just in case that copy in the background fails for whatever reason but uh but yeah otherwise it's not stored in both places it is one or the other no fault tolerance so Mm. yeah yeah so you know again you've got this cool setup and it provides some great benefits really the benefit is speed with less cost uh, sorry, storage and speed with less cost, right? I mean, that's the, it's it's one of those three-way things, right? You you can have two of the three, but not, uh, you know, n- not all three. And this sort of tries to give you all three, low cost, big storage, high speed. Um, but it comes at a cost of not quite the same speed, but pretty close and black hole with your data in terms of recovery. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Moving right along, my friend. To to Paul. I think so. How are we doing on time here? I haven't looked at the time in a little while. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go to, uh, yeah, go to Paul. That's good. All right. And you had a reply, which I didn't copy, but I, okay. I, I, I would hope that you uh, 
Well, you can dig through you. Because, yeah, I think we both replied. I only copied my reply here. Okay, cool. So, Paul says, I've heard many times how bad Lion was and how Mountain Lion fixed Lion. <laughs> my experience has been just the opposite. I never had a problem with Lion. Since upgrading to Mountain Lion, I've been experiencing the dreaded beach ball frequently. Most apps won't respond, but Finder seems to work just fine. After some time, sometimes a few seconds, sometimes a few minutes, the beach ball goes away and all is well. Do you have any suggestions for eliminating the beach ball? And uh, I'll offer some to start here. And then I think you had some reflections on the relative stability of all this stuff here, Dave. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> suggestion for eliminating the beach ball, beach ball would be to lower the brightness or turn your screen off. <laughs> Paul's gone. <laughs> if Paul were here, you'd hear it before you felt it, John. <laughs> <laughs> so now to be serious, the beach ball uh, appears if either an application or the OS thinks that an operation is going to be taking a while. And it's kind of a courtesy to you to give you something entertaining to look at while the computer does whatever it's doing. Of course, it doesn't really tell you why it's there. And this is where we can do a little detective work and we can, uh, I'll start off with the built-in option, which is activity monitor. So when you do notice these beach balls, I would have activity monitor running and you want to look in the following places because one of these categories is probably going to help you zero in on why the beach ball is appearing. Uh, an activity monitor has a number of, of uh, categories. Uh, there's CPU, system memory, disk activity, and network. And any of these resources could could be uh, a bottleneck. Uh, but which one? And so this is what you want to do when you do see that beach ball, uh, assuming you have control and can get to the activity monitor. Uh, look at the following items. So for CPU, it's going to show you, uh, you know, system and user consumption and then the, uh, idle time. If there's no idle time, then maybe you are just uh, taxing the system. Uh, system memory, we've talked about, you know, the number of aspects of memory, uh, but two things. So one, you want to have uh, a certain amount either free or inactive. And I think this may lead to a, a question later, Dave. But as long as you have some free plus inactive, because I consider inactive kind of free. It's kind of free. I think that's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But but just if your free memory is small but you see the inactive is, is rather large, then I think you're, you're okay. I, I have a, I'll take us on a quick tangent here because it's, Go. it's true. Inactive memory is memory that was, was being used by an application, but is no longer needed. And the OS says, that's fine. I'm going to mark it as usable, but I'm not going to release what you had there until something else asks for it, for that space, because you might need it again. And there's no reason that I have to go get it from disc if I've got it right here for you. Right. So it's, it's an efficiency thing. But what I have noticed um, sort of anecdotally is I don't think anecdotally is the right word, but any, in a practical sense, what I have noticed is that, you know, on my Mac right now. So I have I don't know what five gigs of RAM in this thing. Six nineteen are wired. Two point two gigs are active. Two gigs are just shy. One point nine gigs are inactive and two hundred forty five are free. That feels to me and again this is just over years of experience with it and looking at it like everything is fine but if i notice that free number falls below a hundred then i know i'm using too much even if inactive 
seems really high at like, you know, one gig or two gigs or something like that. If free falls lower than a hundred, if it's in double digits, not triple digits, I, that's when I know I'm going to start running into trouble and, uh, and I need to quit some apps and actually create some free memory here. So that, that's sort of my gut. There's no technical reason for it, but there's a lot of experience for it. So there you go. All right. Um, another one. And, you know, I think this may be a place, but there's also disk activity. Um, and the nature of the disk typically is that, you know, if, if disk activity has to happen, then you may get a beach ball and other things may have to kind of hang out for a bit and wait for the disk activity to finish. Oh, I'm sorry. And back in the memory category, you want to make sure that you're not you're not seeing lots of page outs. Page outs means that, oh, gosh, I ran out of memory and I I got to do something with VM. And that's a, a costly, relatively costly operation, yep. even with an SSD, um, much less so with an SSD. But, yeah, but certainly still, with a mechanical drive, once you start page outs, that's that's a big drag on your performance. Yes. Yeah. But still, uh, rel- like you said, relatively costly with an SSD, but not not compared to a mechanical drive. But yeah, I'll give you that. Right. Yep. Um, and network, uh, I, 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 I don't think network, uh, uh, using a lot of network bandwidth is, is going to beach ball you, but certainly the other things, Yep. either, either, uh, either, uh, uh, not having enough CPU or memory or, uh, lots of disk activity. So I think just a, a general high level tutorial on how you may be able, uh, to identify. And then of course, you know, the solution. So CPU, you know, get a better machine, memory, buy more RAM, RAM's cheap, relatively, uh, get an SSD. Sure. Speed up your disk access. Yep. yep. Yeah. And always, you know, close programs I, that you weren't using. I think, and I'm going to go ahead and, and dive into an area that, that I know I'm going to get wrong at some level. So I'll go quickly and then get out. But I, I think mm-hmm. the beach ball means that something is running on the main thread, uh, as opposed to, you know, alternate threads, something is running on the main thread of whatever app you're in, which could be the finder. Right. And is not getting a response from the app or whatever the app is waiting for. And so it's just sitting there saying, okay, uh, I can't let you, the user interact with the app because the main thread of the app is busy doing something. And it's, you know, we've got to wait for that to finish in theory. Developers should write it so that, there are less and less opportunities for that to happen. But sometimes, especially if there's a problem uh, with the OS or the machine, or like you're saying with CPU contention or disk contention or anything like that, then it's just one of those deals that you got to wait for. But I will. So I'll, uh, so now I'm going to back out of that, that realm because I'll, I'll, if I haven't gotten it wrong yet, I'm about to, um, but I know that to be, you know, some, some of my WWDC DC session experience tells me that that's what those beach balls often mean. But I will say this, I'll offer some perspective on this. If in fact your problems aren't RAM or CPU related or don't, uh, don't seem to be, you know, related to these types of things. And, and we certainly saw this with lion, right? Lion just liked to beach ball for no good reason sometimes. And, and we saw it where, you know, you could adjust the volume keys to unstick a, a frozen or a beach balled lion. That's not, that's something fundamentally wrong with the OS on your machine. It wasn't all lion installations, but it was lion installations that were upgraded seemed to be the ones from, you know, upgraded from snow leopard, like an over the top upgrade. So uh, the, the solution with lion, and again, I haven't seen this with mountain lion, but I'll offer some perspective from the lion 
uh, uh, days. And perhaps this will help you with mountain lion too. a clean install of lion uh, tended to solve those problems or it certainly mitigate them, and make them a lot less frequent. So if you are having that kind of problem with mountain lion and it doesn't seem like it's related to disc or CPU or, or Ram or anything, uh, then I would try that with mountain lion too. So you reinstall mountain lion as a clean installation, which means wipe the drive first, make a backup, preferably a clone. Cause that's going to be more efficient for part of this process, but get a backup, preferably two backups so that you're not stuck with your data. Remember the rule is you don't ever want a situation where your data is only in one place. So if you are going to intentionally wipe your hard drive out, uh, then your data will you are creating manually creating a situation where your data is only in one place, that being your backup. So in that case, you want two backups. That's just me being safe. But anyway, get yourself your backups that you're comfortable with. Wipe your hard drive, reinstall Mountain Lion clean, and then use Migration Assistant to bring back in all your data and even your applications with Lion. That path worked very well to get us to a point where it wasn't beach balling as often. So that's what I would try with, uh, with mountain lion as well. If you're, if you're still having issues, hopefully that'll, hopefully that'll straighten it out for you. All right. Um, all right. We are, we are moving along on time. We're getting a little longer in the tooth here. I, I want to talk about a couple of things from CES, John one very quickly that that's cool. I, you know, our friends at digital innovations, they're the ones that made that nest earbud case that we talked about. It was like 10 bucks for the, the stocking stuffer realm. Uh, they have something that I don't want to pull this up right here that they call the charge doctor. Uh, and we'll put a link in the, in the show notes for it. It is not out yet. They say that it's going to be out February or March. What the charge doctor does, you know, when you take your iPad and plug it into your Mac. Uh, what's the first thing you see up near the battery? The first thing you see is not charging. And this is because your Mac is providing power to the iPad, but it's not providing two amps of power. Uh, and so the iPad goes into uh, it's not burning power, but it's not getting enough from your Mac to power it to charge it while the screen is on. If you turn the screen off, your your iPad will charge, albeit at a much slower rate. The same thing happens, of course, when you plug your iPad into an older charge brick or a charge brick built only for an iPhone. The charge doctor is not for those, but it is for your computer. <clears throat> Excuse me. The charge doctor is a little inline device that plugs into your Mac's USB port, and then it has a USB connector on it. It's very, very small. Uh, it, it's a pass-through device, but it's a pass-through device that tells your Mac, hey, Give me two amps of power and then it passes those two amps of power along to your iPad so that it can charge at full speed while connected to your Mac. Uh, it's basically doing something that Apple decided not to do in the iPad for whatever reason. And uh, and it's just saying to the Mac, give me more power if you have it. And if the Mac has it, which they do, then it passes that along to your iPad. And now you can charge your iPad from your Mac at full speed. Um, they say that this is going to be 30 bucks. And uh, it's smart in that it will uh, give two amps to your iPad, but only one to your iPhone because that's all your iPhone needs. And uh, and they say it'll be out, let's say, March, maybe a little earlier than that. But uh, it's me saying maybe a little earlier. So we'll say March from them. But that's the uh, that's the charge doctor. So I thought that was pretty cool, John. 
very nice. Yeah, very nice. So the other thing that I saw, and I saw it, I have to talk about it. Well, we'll talk about it once, but I, I saw it twice. And the first time I saw it, I thought it was a toaster fridge. And and this was Samsung's Galaxy camera. Right. When I first saw the announcement, I thought, oh, what are they up to? Why in the world are they taking, a, you know, a digital, a decent <clears throat> digital camera and cramming it on top of, you know, what used to be a smartphone? And because that's what it looks like, um, or at least on the specs, that's what it looks like. And on first glance, that's what it looks like, because that's what it is. But this is stupid. And then I had the chance. I was actually with Chris Voss from the Chris Voss show. Uh, and I had the chance to play with it a little bit. And my mind completely changed. And here's why. We all have smartphones, right? Uh, which are essentially, you know, mobile computing devices with a phone and a crappy camera. And the cameras have gotten better. Don't get me wrong. The iPhone 5 camera is the best that we've ever had on a phone, uh, at least on an iPhone. But it's it's still crap. It's I mean, if you compare it to a regular camera, you know, in, in the right lighting, it works great. But otherwise, you're sort of stuck, you know, and it's got no optical zoom and, and all that stuff. Well, what if the camera is really important to you and the phone? Maybe not so much. Right. So what if we prioritize the camera in this device? And deprioritize the phone, but leave the the mobile computing, the tablet, the part alone or the, you know, the, the smartphone part alone. And that's exactly what's what Samsung has done. Now, of course, it runs Android. It doesn't run iOS, but it's the same functions that you would have on your smartphone from a tablet standpoint. You, you've got all the wireless functions, you, you know, 4G or, or Wi-Fi or whatever you want. You can get your mail. You can edit pictures, you can post pictures, you can browse the web, you can install any apps you want, you can get all your notifications, you can run Skype, right? So you can make calls from this uh, in that sense, um, but you turn it over and it's got this awesome camera, 22x optical zoom, you know, all of uh, it's got a real flash, uh, very, very interesting paradigm shift. It's actually a very uh, comfortable thing to hold. It's it's obviously thicker than uh, than your typical uh, smartphone because it's got a camera on it, but it's not that thick. It's it's pretty thin, and um, it's a very interesting paradigm. You know, it's but the problem is it it's really plastic, and and we were calling it a one dropper. You know, you you drop this thing on anything but carpet, and I think it's going to shatter. We didn't test that, mind you, but that's how it feels. But it's the first of these types of devices. It's just really an interesting thing to think about taking the, this device that we all have or many of us have become used to and starting to highlight and, you know, reprioritize what it does. Because I'd say for a lot of us, and my guess is that you might be one of these people, John, is that the camera functionality is more important than the phone, probably to the point where you carry a, a real digital camera with you far more often, uh, you know, alongside your iPhone because you, you know, you want both. So what if you could have them in one device and it meant sacrificing some of the phone functionality, at least for now, you know, so that that's the. Uh, it's, it's interesting. Cool. Actually, I do do that now. I, I a lot figured. of times I, I like to uh, take a stroll around the uh, campus that I work on. And uh, actually, I got a good uh, you may you may have seen me post it, but um, 
Uh, I got a, sh- so I carry around my Lumix, which uh, the one that I have has a 12 X optical zoom. I want to upgrade that because I think now the same form factor has a 20 X, but, um, I saw it's either a Falcon or a Hawk. And the only way I was going to catch this. So for, at first I saw it and I was too close to it, I think for it's, uh, comfort and it flew to a tree much higher. Okay. Uh, but with the 12 X zoom, I was still able to get a fairly good shot and, uh, yeah, you look mean. <laughs> yeah, sharp claws and sharp beak and all that. And uh, I think think I've seen the uh, leftovers of some of his handiwork. <laughs> little tiny little skeleton. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the the iPhone is uh, uh, yeah because it doesn't you know I mean you can't fit sophisticated optics or any optics really in there at all. Right. I do have some third party lens kits though. I do have an ADX uh, telephoto lens that you clamp onto it. Which is kind of neat. Oh. It didn't cost too much. The problem is, uh, as you can imagine, is that you got to have either an incredibly steady hand or use a, a tripod. Because turning the iPhone lens all of a sudden into an 8X uh, optical lens, every little jitter. Yeah. <laughs> you can see. And then actually I got from uh, our buddy Barry, actually, I think had one of these and uh, forwarded to me the uh, Olo clip. That's kind of neat oh. too. Yeah. <clears throat> those guys were there. I actually got one of those to, to mess with. I got it just before the cruise, actually. And that's pretty cool. The Olaclip is a um, a, a little, um, well, it's a lens that, that fits over the corner of your iPhone where the camera sits. <clears throat> and uh, it's got two sides to it. One is a, a fisheye lens that gives you, obviously, a, a, you know, a very wide view. And then the other side, you take it off, flip it around, put it on, is a macro lens that lets you get very, very, very close. And it's actually really cool. Excuse me. They had something at at CES, which was a case for your iPhone that integrates the Olo clip and it uh-huh. um, it, 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 it lets you put the Olo clip on. But you sort of flip a piece off of the case to fit the Olo clip on. And then that piece comes around to the top and acts as your shutter switch uh, because it pushes against the volume button, which can which is actually pretty cool. So, yeah, the Olo clip is cool. I, lo- I like that thing. Yeah. The other part, well, the, the one thing that had me scratching my head for a while is that on the, on the one side, or at least the version that I had, yeah, uh, it had a uh, uh, wide angle lens. And I'm like, well, where's well, that's the, the macro lens? Yeah. Well, right. Eventually I figured out, yeah, you got to screw off the wide angle and, and that's the macro lens. Was that the, the Olo clip? Because that the, the current Olo clip does not have that. The current Olo clip, you take the, the uh, lens off you turn it there are two lenses on it and it's very obvious what what you're supposed to do there's no unscrewing you just you just pull it off of your iphone turn it around and put it on and now oh. you've got a macro yeah, so you either one of the uh, thinking, early ones thinking about an early one or or perhaps a different product yeah yeah but no the ola clip is you, you can see it if you look on their site you can see what the ola clip looks like um and it's cool i i, I like it and i think it's you know relatively cheap is it like uh I thought it was like 75, it's 70 bucks. Yeah. So, I mean, for what you're getting, you know, two extra lenses, pretty cool. Fun stuff. Three. You mean three. Two. Oh, I see. Oh, you're totally right. Fish, fish eye, wide angle, and you take the wide angle off, it makes it a macro. So it's three, three. You're right. Lenses in one. I missed what you were saying. Yes, yes, yes. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Three lenses. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're right. Okay. Sorry. I was fighting my throat, I think, and wasn't 
Yeah, again, it was board. like, well, wait a second. It has two sides. How can it have three lenses? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. <laughs> and then I went to their site and they had a little video saying, hey, screw this off. This is how it works. Yep. Okay. Yep. All right. What is next? I think, um, well, how are we doing? We're burning daylight here, my friend. Um, uh, I'm trying to look. You know what? Let's do. Uh, Evan? Uh, no, we don't have time for that. We, uh, uh, we'll go to, we'll go to Dan here. Um, because it's a good little tip perhaps oh, to, uh, yeah. to wrap things up with, you know, Dan, uh, Dan says going back to two episodes to episode four thirty, says a listener was trying to download lion from the app store. Uh, you guys said that lion is no longer available to download in the Mac app store. I listened several times for a specific comment, clarifying if it was dependent, if the user had had purchased it or not. And it was not clear. Just to help, I took screenshots of my own ability to download Lion, even though I had Mountain Lion installed. I've done this numerous times. And he's right. Um, we were looking in where I was looking in the store and searching for OS 10 Lion. And uh, it is not there. You can't find it. However, as Dan points out, if you owned it in the past, purchased it as part of your Mac or or, or otherwise, and you go to your purchases tab, it will be there. And there's instead of having the install button next to it, it has a download button next to it and you can download it and it will warn you. It'll say, look, you already have 10.8 Mountain Lion installed. Are you sure you want to redownload 10.7? And then, of course, it'll let you go ahead and do that. So, yes, Lion is fully available if you already own it. And, and it worked totally fine for me. I just was looking in the wrong tab. You got to look in the purchases tab. So or purchased tab, I should say. Which was pretty cool. I still, I still get an error. It, I wonder if it's because it was a dev copy. Do you see it in, in yes, your purchase tab? absolutely. Oh, really? Purchased OS ten Lion. Okay. And then I see a download button. And if I click on the download button. Yeah. For me, again, you, I think it's because it was a developer copy. It says, would you like to continue? OS ten seven is already installed on this computer. Are you okay. sure you want to download it? And I say continue. Yeah. Oh, now it's asking me to sign in. This is a good sign. Real-time testing here, folks, just for you. We could not complete your request. There was an error in the App Store. Please try again later. I bet you're right. 13. I'm like, oh, thanks, 13. Yeah, of course. Ah, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> error 13. We should all. <laughs> oh, how we laughed. Apple should publish a list of what all those errors mean. I think there is a, actually a, you know a, what? 13, an iTunes one. You know what 13 is or was in the finder back in OS, uh, like OS 9 and, and prior OS 8, OS 7, OS 6. 13 was file not found. And I bet it's still file not found. I bet you have a pointer to it. Like you said, the dev copy of Lion. You say download and it's saying error 13. I went to give you this. I don't have it. File not found. I bet that's exactly what's going on. Yeah, so could be. Yeah. And of course, um, and then, yeah, actually the thing I was mentioning here, there is an article. If you do get iTunes numerical errors, there's the article for that. Yeah. Okay. That, 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 have you found that to be, I guess it, I guess it doesn't hurt, but uh, sometimes, and then another tangent, but it's useful. Oh, what is it, Dave? Is it uh what, what do you type in the terminal to give you the meaning of a numerical error code? Oh, we've talked about this before. Oh, um, Mac error. Okay. I'm sorry. Mac error. And then the, the number. Yes. 
Right. All one word, right? M-A-C-E-R-R-O-R. Yeah. And here, let's see. Uh, Yeah. From the terminal. So if I type Mac error 13. uh, Yeah. Ooh, uninstalled interrupt error. Hmm. That's different. Huh. Try negative 13. Extension disabled. (laughs) Okay. Can you uh, ask for iTunes store error? I know you can't. I'm just. Mac error script translates Mac error numbers into their symbolic name and description. Okay. That's nice. Yeah. Mac error. Yeah. We all got to remember that. I forget. I forget that that even exists, let alone forget what the command is. So thanks for that reminder. That's awesome, John. Uh, You know, one other quick tip Uh, on your iPhone, as you can on your Mac. Uh, but this one specifically for your iPhone, as you uh, when you go to a spotlight search, which means you from the main screen, just hit your um, button again or uh, swipe to the right, which moves things to the left, whatever uh, you can search your iPhone, which is spotlight on your iPhone uh, on mine. It was driving me crazy this week because I was trying to launch apps from it because I have a lot of apps on my phone and that's how I launch apps. But it kept coming up with contacts. And then I had to like scroll past the context to get to the app I wanted to launch. And sometimes it would float to the top because the, it was Titan top hit, but it was driving me crazy. And so I went into, uh, on iOS, you know, on my phone, I went into settings, I went into general and I went into spotlight and you can reorder the categories of things that appear here, just like you can on your Mac. And so I put applications at the top and, uh, and now my life is so much better. So. I share that tip with you, John, and, and all of our listeners. It's good stuff. Um, I guess we would be, not I guess, I know we would be remiss if we didn't uh, extend our sympathies and condolences and, and also just sharing some information here about uh, Aaron Swartz, who took his life in the past couple of days. Um, he was 26 years old. Aaron was one of the people that was responsible for creating RSS, which uh, without it, you know, podcasts as we know them wouldn't exist, but many things on the internet wouldn't exist. And uh, he also founded a company that then sort of rolled in and became part of what Reddit started out to be. And, uh, but he was someone who believed in, in information being free and committed some offenses. Um, depending on your point of view, arguably very, very minor, or if you're the justice department, arguably very, very major. Uh, He went into a couple of databases and took some uh, texts, I believe mostly academic texts and, and made them available for all, not for his profit, but just because he he believed they should be free. Um, None of these entities chose to press charges, but the government did choose to press charges and levied like huge, uh, uh, penalties or what would have been huge penalties against him. And uh, he also suffered from depression, uh, of course, which uh, contributed greatly to, I'm sure his decisions in the last couple of days, but the stresses of, of what was going on with these cases, I, I assume was also part of it. So it's a shame to have lost him. And, uh, and there was a great article that Jeff Gamet wrote up yesterday on TMO uh, about this, which we'll link to in the show notes, simply because there's some fantastic comments about uh, uh, from people that knew Aaron in in the uh, in the comments following the article. So it's a it's a it was he, Jeff did a fantastic job writing it up, and uh, I encourage you to read it. 
simply so that you know who this guy was and, and what he started. And, and hopefully uh, some of that can continue. So sympathies and apologies and or not apologies. Condolences go out to uh, Aaron's friends and family. Moving on, John, I'm not sure we have anything else. You know what? Let's do Evan. You wanted to do Evan. Let's do Evan. Shall we? Oh, I think it can be short and sweet. It can be. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's keep it short, short and sweet. Yeah. Right. Promise. We're really good at that. Um, yeah. <laughs> doing what we do here. Evan writes, uh, I got a MacBook Pro for Christmas and I'm loving it. Although, however, I have had so much anxiety over the temperatures I was getting. Uh, I'm getting about 96 uh, degrees centigrade, 203 degrees Fahrenheit, and the fan speeds were pegged at 2000 RPM. So I took it to Best Buy and exchanged it. I got a new one uh, migrated from Super Duper and I'm running it a little colder now, thanks to SMC Fan Control. SMC Fan Control is an amazing little app. Uh, it lets it and as an aside, what it does is it lets you see and also control your fans. iStat menus will also let you do this uh, back to. Evan, he says, uh, I turn it so that my fans are running at 4000 RPM just when gaming and it keeps my temperatures down to about 65 degrees centigrade or 150 degrees uh, at Fahrenheit. Now, I told the guys over at Apple support communities uh, that I was using this program and some people are completely against it. I was just curious what you guys thought. My dad and I both agree we'd rather have our fans die a couple years earlier than turning my MacBook Pro into a heater. I've given up worrying, but I'm curious about your thoughts. Revving the fans to 4,000 or 5,000 does not shorten the life of the Mac as a whole, right? Or does it? That's insane. All right. So uh, here's my thing about fan speeds. I trust Apple. The only thing that it's good to see is whether your fans are spinning or not. Uh, from And this is, again, you asked for our opinion, so I'm sharing mine. I'm curious to hear yours, John. Um, but I tend not to worry about the temperature because... Uh, if your fans are running at 2000 RPM, which is the minimum on most, if not all products that uh, all Apple laptops anyway, uh, it's because Apple set it that way, right? That's the minimum. It just keeps the fans going uh, and it does some level of cooling, but, uh, but they will ramp up at preset temperatures. So, you know, you you say your processor is running at, you know, 200 degrees Fahrenheit and your fan is still at 2000 RPM. That's because Apple uh, in their testing has decided that the processor is okay running at 200 degrees F and it doesn't need to be cooled anymore. Cooling takes more energy. You've got to speed up the fans. And now, uh, you know, that is going to not only make it louder, but it's also going to run your battery life down because you're running the fans faster. So Apple has knows what the tolerances are on the chips that they put in their computers. They write the OS. So it's, you know, it's one of the benefits of kind of the Apple closed ecosystem uh, to use that term is that, you know, they know what's in the box. The operating system knows what's in the box and they're able to say, yeah, no, 200 is okay, but maybe 210 is too hot and we're going to, you know, help keep it there or, or, you know, not let it get above. And then, and then that's when the fans go up. You can run the fans. It, I'm sure running them faster uh, will in theory potentially shorten their life. It will certainly shorten your battery life and it will make things louder in the process. So I just, I trust Apple and I've never had a problem other than I've, I've had fans burn out and that's a pain because you got to replace them. But, uh, but other than that, I don't, I don't sweat it. What about you, John? Now, you know, the number that they come up with, so you may ask yourself, how do they know what, what temperature is safe? 
Yeah. And I'll tell you how the, how Apple knows this is because Intel tells them. Okay. So the processor has a, a temperature sensor. And Apple can look at this. Uh, and actually, I looked up the Core 2 Duo and, and uh, the, the feel that I get from just a couple of quick articles here is that at least for most Core 2 Duos, the maximum safe temperature to run at is about 100 Celsius. Okay. Now, isn't that funny? Because the, uh, the information that we just got from our, our listener said that, yeah, mine's hovering around, um, what was it? Uh, said 96 93. degrees Celsius. 96. Uh, or 96. Gee, that's funny. That's very close to the figure that Apple is, or Intel states, is the maximum safe temperature to run it at. Yep. In fact, it's so, under it. Yeah. That's yes. Right. But close to it because it's doing the exact job it should be. They're right. saying, oh, so what they probably saw is the temperatures. Oh, OK, let me turn the fans on a little bit and, and you know, keep it at this temperature. Well, I think uh, on, on laptops, the fans will run at 2000 RPM. Yes, I of, think they're always running out of the gate. Right. And then they will ramp up. Yeah. And it, as horse in the chat room is pointing out, his iMac runs at 1200 out of the gate, you know, and, and again, we'll ramp up if uh, if necessary. So carry on. Yeah. And then yeah. then there's another. And I think you indicated this too, or you've mentioned in the past, Dave, but we'll mention it now. So, so there are two temperature points for the processor. So one is is the maximum safe temperature. And, and this can be read and acted on uh, with the fans. Uh, the other is the catastrophic thermal protection temperature, or at least that's one way somebody put it. And for the Core 2 Duo, that's 125 Celsius. If the processor reaches that temperature, it will shut down. Right. Your I Mac will shut happens. down. Yeah. Or your Mac or yeah, or this is like a, a warning. Yeah. So, so I think what happens is if the if the processor or any other component ever gets uh, beyond what's considered the, you know, oh my gosh, you know, everything's melting <laughs> or yeah. is going to melt. Yeah. Then I think the machine will just shut down to protect itself. Yeah. I've never seen that happen, but I would assume that is what happens. It is. So, and um, Dan in the, and uh, or sorry, I'm not, I'm sorry. Dab C, uh, I was reading quick in the chat room says that he remembers his uh, iMac would shut itself off when it got too hot playing certain games. So in that case, what he did was he, as a preemptive strike, used uh, SMC fan controller, iStep menus to crank his fan speeds up to keep, you know, stay ahead of that temperature surge that he knew he was going to get to keep things, keep things down. Similar to what, what, what Evan's talking about. Dan was doing it. Sorry. Dab C was doing it to run, uh, to keep the Mac from shutting off. Evan's doing it just to see a number that, that makes him happy. And I, I don't say that to be, to be crass. I just, that's what, that's what's happening here. So. Huh. I can't believe it actually, because it, to me, that would actually be a poor design or they, they uh, poor profiling of the, uh, well, you know, to no, the, in, in that Apple can't in, know in, your Apple, environment, right? If he's got his computer tucked in a corner that doesn't ventilate, you know, as well as as it as it as as one would expect a normal environment to be, then perhaps there, there is a good reason to do that. Yeah. All right. I guess I could see that because, you know, if you if you uh, either empirically or however you, you profile the problem, you should say, oh, I see this rising at this rate. I think I better predict what's going to happen and turn the fans on before it reaches this this, uh, you know, catastrophic maximum. Right. So maybe if uh, yeah, I just couldn't get there fast or enough or whatever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Okay. The only other thing with fans, the last thing. So, you know, uh, uh, as we mentioned, there's a program called SMC fan control. Well, why is the 
what does SMC mean? Oh, well, SMC is the system management controller, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And the only thing that Apple mentions, and I, I posted an article here, is that they do suggest that if your fans seem to be running uh, more often than you think they should be, you can reset the SMC and that should uh, reset that behavior. That's true. Yeah. System management controller is what that is. All right. I think it's time to uh, see if I can't find the band in here, John, somewhere. Hey, I pushed the fader up and there they are. They've been playing all this time. They're really good at this groove, though. Sounds exactly the same every time they play it round and round. Loop and loop yeah. after loop and loop. <laughs> yeah, bo. All right. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. That's, uh, there's always more we can talk about here, but, uh, but, you know, there's only so much time in the day. Thank you so much for joining us, folks. Let's see. Uh, if you want to contact us, feedback at MacGeekab.com is the email address to use. There's also feedback at MacGeekab.com. And lastly, feedback at MacGeekab.com is the email address. <laughs> if you if you need a third option, it's like American Idol. We, we, we need to make sure all the lines are open and they don't get clogged. So if you have trouble... You can also use as a special address feedback at MacGeekGab.com. You can also call us at 206-666-GEEK, which John is? 4335. That's right. And uh, you can see the show notes that uh, are lovingly handcrafted, some during the show, some uh, after the fact, at uh, MacGeekGab.com. You can also listen to the shows right there online. Um, We have, uh, well, all kinds of stuff there. You can Facebook. Fo- yeah, you can. Yeah, that's right. You can. You can follow us on Facebook. We'd love it if you liked us on Facebook. And John, what is that address on Facebook? Facebook.com/slash MacGeekGab. There's a theme here. It seems similar on Twitter. You can find us at you guessed it MacGeekGab, and you can also find us individually. John is uh, John F. Braun. Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete. I'm Dave Hamilton. You can find all the headlines from uh, from TMO from Mac Observer at Mac Observer on Twitter. I'm trying to think of what else we got and, here. Oh. oh, we haven't mentioned it in a while. iTunes comments. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that can range from fish shakes. So uh, we, we prefer that you don't. <laughs> well, you, you know, the well, only if problem- you want to shake your fist, then go ahead and shake it. Yeah. Just remember, we can't reply to those comments. So, you know, we do uh, we do try to obviously we do this show for you. So if you have a problem, we we'd love to hear about it. Uh, bring it to us, and, uh, and and we'd love to know that. Uh, ranting on iTunes is great, but uh, and we can read it, uh, which we do sometimes. But uh, but getting directly in touch with us is is better. However, yeah. the iTunes comments are a good thing because they do promote the show. Which uh, you know, the, the larger this show becomes, the better it is for you because uh, not only does it keep us going because we do get attrition. Some of you stop listening, which is normal. Uh, so keep keep new folks coming in is a good thing for all of us because it keeps the show going. It also enhances the size of the brain trust here. So when there is a problem that uh, John and I can't find the answer to or don't know the answer to, we can put it out to you. And when you is larger and larger, there's a better chance that the answer comes in. So thank you so much. Uh, you, you will be assimilated. You will be. That's right. That's that's what it is. It's, but it's the family. It's like a nice tight knit group. Well, because just as with the Borg, we just want to improve the quality of life for everyone. That's right. And you know, John, we will be at MacWorld Expo 
Uh, I am oh, going yeah. to attend. There it is. My uh, so uh, our our schedule at MacWorld is the following. Uh, I'm going to work backwards. On Saturday, which is the last day of the show, at 1 p.m., and all these times are, of course, local time in San Francisco. Uh, at 1 p.m., John and I will be doing a Mac Geek Ab right there on the show floor. So that's key number one. Uh, really? Yes. It's going to be awesome. Yep. They've, they've brought us back to the show floor. They've got like a little booth set up for us. There's chairs for you to sit. Uh, there'll be microphones and a PA, obviously. I don't know okay. if we'll be able to stream that one. And I'm just going to leave it at that. So those of you that aren't there, we'll see. Uh... But we certainly will record it and, and release it to the feeds like we always do. Uh, but those of you that are in the chat room that want to stream, and, and of course the chat room is macgeekup.com slash stream. Friday, the day before, at 8 p.m. is Cirque du Mac 10. If you are a Mac Geekup listener, especially if you're a premium listener, and you wish to attend Cirque du Mac, let us know. We do have some tickets set aside specifically for, for you folks. Uh, we don't have a ton of them, but we do have some. So, And those of you that have asked that haven't had replies from us yet, uh, we haven't replied to anyone yet, uh, or at least I haven't because I've been traveling all week, but uh, but we will get there. Um, and I believe, for the first time ever, Cirque du Mac 10 will be streamed live on the internet, so pay attention for more details on that. Friday uh, at 2 o'clock p.m., uh, I will be doing my Everyone's a Home Network Administrator Now session uh, in room 2011, I believe. So you need an iFan pass for that. But uh, the iFan passes are cheap. They're like, you know, what, 75 bucks now? Uh, and you get access to everything. So it's awesome. And then uh, Thursday at 6, so the first day of the show, 6 p.m., uh, I will be doing a five-minute tip. I believe I'm going to do a tip on mail. Like, actually going to get to work on that, don't I? Because it's like two weeks away. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to be doing that at uh, as part of the rapid-fire session. There's 10 of us, each doing five-minute tips. Uh, I know Dan Moran's going to be there from Macworld. Chris Breen from Macworld. Um I think Chuck Latornis uh, is, is going to do in one, too. So it's going to be a blast. It was a blast last year. It'll be even better this year. So that's a Thursday at 6. So there's the schedule. And if you need a pass for Macworld Expo, uh, we don't have free iFan passes because uh, that's content that that's good to pay for. And I guess, again, it's cheap. But if you, all you want is an exhibit floor thing, we do have those. I will put a link in the show notes for that. Uh, so that's it. That's what I got. We ready to get out of here, John? Ready, Freddy. All right. <laughs> it's a crazy little thing. Uh, we'd like to thank Michael Johnston from We Have Communicators for converting this show to AAC and adding all those great chapters. Thank you, Michael. Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-O-Y.com for all of the bandwidth to get it from us to you. Podcast Marketplace includes, of course, Gazelle, as we mentioned, Text Expander from Smile, BB Edit from Barebone Software, and Squarespace coming up. We'll tell you a little bit more about them in an upcoming show. All through Backbeat Media, of course. John, I have a message to send, but based on some of the, uh, I have advice to share. And based on some of the uh, pre-show chatter, I have a method in which I believe it would be perfect to share this particular bit of information. So pay Attention closely. Made up.